Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Nemi, your host for The Wildlife, and also author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensic Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, I'll talk about using detection dogs for wildlife conservation with Megan Parker, co-founder and executive director of Working Dogs for Conservation. Detection dogs are a new tool wildlife biologists are using with great success to study and find rare and invasive species around the world. The nonprofit organization Working Dogs for Conservation is at the forefront of training detection dogs for wildlife conservation. The group trains dogs to detect wildlife samples, from live plants and animals to seeds and scat. Basically, they're trained to use their noses to sniff out what wildlife biologists can't easily see or find. And they do it in a non-intrusive way, that is, without the baiting, luring, trapping, handling, or radio collaring of the animals. The other advantage is that animal scatter poop is a great information resource. It provides mountains of data about the animal's presence, its use of a habitat, its diet, its gender, and its relatedness, and even individual identity. The dogs at Working Dogs for Conservation have sniffed out dwindling populations of cheetahs in Kenya, they've helped with population surveys of endangered snow leopards in eastern Russia, and uncovered wolf carcasses illegally shot by hunters in Montana. The dogs also work on invasives, both plant and animal. Extermination of invasive plants, like knapweed, is often extremely difficult because tiny plants and seeds can escape detection, and thus get the ability to reproduce. Yet dogs are extremely good at finding these escapees. In fact, a study published in 2010 in Invasive Plant Science and Management found that trained dogs were much better able than humans to locate these fugitives, especially when their numbers were few and far between. Megan Parker grew up in Montana, where she began training dogs when she was just 10 years old. She received her BA from Middlebury College in Vermont and her MS from Boise State University in Raptor Ecology, studying falcons in Guatemala. She has worked as a biologist in many states in the U.S., Canada, Central America, Asia, and Africa. Beginning in 1996, she started exploring the wider potential for dogs in non-intrusive wildlife research. Her idea of training dogs to find scat of specific species in the wild coincided with the increasing capacity of biologists in the mid-1990s to extract viable DNA samples from tissue particles contained in animal scat. When I spoke to her recently, I asked Megan what prompted her to form Working Dogs for Conservation. Um, There are four of us as co-founders of Working Dogs for Conservation, and we've all, we all have been working with training detection dogs for conservation projects since uh, the late 90s. I started with some other folks in the mid-90s, and we, you know, we were just trying to work in the kinks out, and we decided to form this organization in 2000 and become a not-for-profit organization because we all had a you know, deep passion for conservation and for dog training. And so many of the projects that were approaching us or that we wanted to work on we're really suited for um, an, you know, a nonprofit organization. And, and we worked well together and have a lot of respect for each other, and we all have different skill sets. So we have formed this organization, and we still, everyone's working away tirelessly, um, you know, for, for the last 10 years, figuring out how best these dogs work and how we can serve conservation projects um, to the best of dogs' abilities. Tell me about the organization itself, and what are detection dogs for conservation? Well, detection dogs are across the board. Dogs trained to find target odors, and that it doesn't matter if they're bomb dogs, cadaver dogs, search and rescue dogs, narcotics dogs. Um, they are trained to air scent rather than track. So, a tracking like a bloodhound is. Um, you know, instinctively, genetically, and trained to track, to footstep track, say, a person through an area. And these dogs don't ever track an animal. They only scent what they're trained to find. So we often train on scat, poop, 
because it has so much information. There's just these data-rich packets that animals are leaving out there. And, they're, um, you know, they have information about what they're eating, where they are, whether they're male or female, um, you know, some other hormonal information, disease information. And they're out there on the landscape. Animals are just behaving as they would. And then we come along afterwards with dogs, and the dogs are trained to find poop or, you know, scat. And they, they work to it from sometimes quite long distances. And they sit, and they wait for us to come, maybe collect other data about where that poop was found and collect it, and then we often send it to a genetic lab. So we work closely with genetic labs. So these dogs are trained to find whatever target odor we're asking them to find. And it might be an invasive plant that is too small for a person to find, or poop from an endangered species, um, or multiple species where they might be using a corridor between protected areas and crossing a highway. We can give information on, here's where grizzly bears are crossing, here'd be a great place for a road underpass because we're finding scats that are mapped out in such a way. Um, or here's the seven endangered species that are of concern in this area. We use our detection dogs to help define wildlife corridors and movement patterns, which then you can get lots of other information, like where are they coming into conflict with landowners and roads and other things. And then we mon- help monitor endangered species non-invasively by finding their poop. And then we find invasive species, and we've worked everything from crazy invasive weeds in Iowa and uh, working on a project that's coming up in Colorado and Montana where these invasive weeds are really changing the way prairies and native plants can exist and just, you know, kind of moving all the natives out and taking over. And then we've worked on invasive um, animals as well. Um, Two of my partners were in Hawaii this year and last year working for the Army on an invasive snail that came from southeast United States, was introduced to the island of Hawaii, and it's a carnivorous snail. It's a wolf snail, uh, <laughs> and it's it's eating um, it's eating the native snails. So, and that's like you know it's a big deal. And these are you know little snails. So, what the do these snails litter. look like, and what kind of scent does a snail have? <laughs> well, you know, I I couldn't tell you because I can't smell a snail. You have to have a really long conversation with one of the dogs that's trained up on these. <laughs> <laughs> They're called um, Euglandia. is the is the uh, the genus of this snail, this, you know, commonly called a wolf snail, and they are just a brown, you know, they're just a brown land snail, but they climb onto another snail and, you know, kind of in this ghastly way, just suck out the other and eat the, the native snails. And so, um, they were, you know, testing how well did the dogs do at finding snails, and you can't imagine that they leave a whole lot of odor, but dogs are really good at picking up things that don't have very much odor. So, the more that they smell something, the better they get at it. So the dogs were actually better the second year than they were the first year. They'd had more olfactory receptors. They had more time to build those in their, you know, in their olfactory, you know, system. So they can find snails down in the leaf litter that, you know, it's a tedious process even for a dog, but the dogs were doing better than people at finding, you know, little snails, leaf litter colored in the leaf litter in Hawaii. So, oh, go ahead. So the dogs are literally nosing around in the leaf litter. Mm-hmm. And so they're not working. You watched my dog, Pepin, work. He's you know, wide-ranging. He's looking for poop, his head's up. And these dogs are working in a very detailed um, fashion, working in a very small area in a very detailed way. It's not like they're running up to a snail. But, yeah, they're working really hard. And get and finding snails in the leaf litter. Yeah. And how big are these snails? Just like an inch or two? Yeah, look small. They're little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and we, you know, and um, we we trained our dogs on brown tree snakes in Guam, which were again, you know, islands. The biggest threat to island ecosystems are invasives. And in World War II, snakes came from Australia on board ships to Guam, which was in the Pacific military theater. And so ships were coming and going all the time. Inadvertently, snakes were coming on board. And they, you know, Guam didn't have any snakes. And the birds evolved thinking everything was fine with nesting on the ground. And when snakes came slithering up, they didn't bother to even fly away. So 
snakes extirpated 12 of the native species of birds on Guam. They're gone. And a number of the other species are endangered because brown tree snakes have taken over. There are literally millions and millions of brown tree snakes all over Guam. They're arboreal, they're nocturnal, so they're hard to find when they're moving around. And they and anyway, so we 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 worked with uh, USGS to train dog teams to go over. Not, I mean, Guam is a bit of a lost cause to be honest, but they want to make sure that these tr- snakes aren't traveling to other islands in the Marianas and doing the same thing that they did to Guam, which was extirpate all the local birds and lizards and stuff. So, you know, again, things that are hard to find, <laughs> dogs can have been able to do an you know an amazing job at finding these things that are rare hard to find, camouflaged, move at night, all these things. And they do it non-invasively. They don't, you know, they don't run up and touch the animal that they're looking for. They just tell their handler, and then it's the handler's job to collect the information. So that's, so, so that's why you use dogs rather than people to find some of these, because people can't find it? People can't find Well, you know, even, even in scats, and there's been some really interesting studies where, um, there's a guy who studies coyotes out of Utah, and he he had people out looking for coyote poop because poop has so much great information, right? So, and he was just saying how well his human crews did, and he painted some coyote poop blue, blue poop on the side of a dirt road and put it out there, and just wanted to see how many samples his field crews were picking up. And the he just was shocked by the number of poop painted blue by trained observers were missed. And so it's just poop is camouflaged. It's hard to find. And sometimes animals try to hide it. They don't want to be found. Some, you know, a female with a cub, she may go quite a ways away from a trail to leave, uh, you know, to leave any sign of her passing there because she wants to be, um, you know, she doesn't want to advertise her presence or the presence of her babies or whatever it might be. And um, dogs don't care whether it's under a bush or in a trail or, you know, by a creek and sometimes underwater. We've had dogs alert on poop that's, you know, several feet under a, you know, a creek running in the springtime. So really? dogs, are fi- <laughs> yeah, yeah. dogs are finding these samples wherever they exist and getting a good population estimates. And there's lots of great ways to get information on wildlife, putting radio collars on, um, putting out hair snags and you know, um, camera traps, and often camera traps and hair snakes, you also do something to lure animals in so you get a better chance of getting the information. But you also change the way an animal behaves. You move something in closer, and possibly if a male comes in to leave some hair, a female would avoid it who's ha- who has a cub and, again, doesn't want to be advertising her presence. And so we feel that using the dogs is a great way of, you know, without bias, looking at these uh, wildlife populations because they're just fine and where animals poop don't care where it is is it less expensive than these other ways you know like radio collars and hair snags you know it depends hair snagging is really cheap you put out bob wire but to get a good population estimate it often takes a very long time you have to go back many times you're paying a technician to maybe hike in deep into the back country and doing repeated visits which is often just part of a good study design what the dogs are typically more expensive up front. You're paying for a trained handler dog team, but you get a lot more information in a very short period of time. So, yes, it is cost-effective, and there have been some studies. Actually, out of the University of Vermont, there's a guy who did his um, – two people have worked, and one guy did his Ph.D., a, a man named Robert Long, in Vermont looking at um, bobcats, black bears, and fisher. And it, you know, thick Vermont woods, and and he compared how well camera trapping, radio coloring, I think I'm getting this right. I mean, I mean, me missing this up, but and dogs did, and dogs were more cost effective, found far more um, individuals, meaning you got a much better and accurate population count, and over the long term, were much more cost effective, and you get you just get accurate information in a shorter period of time, you get abundant samples, so. What dogs are really good at is going out and getting much more than any other method we know of. Um, You don't get the same information as radio calling. You don't know exactly where an animal goes, but you're also not darting an animal, and you're not putting biologists up in planes, um, you know, 
several times a week to get those radio collar uh, locations. So the types of information you can get from the poop is you can identify, can you go over it a little bit more? You were talking about hormones and DNA, what they're eating, and how does it work, say, for population studies? Well, you for pop, if you want to know a population of an endangered species, which is often, you know, the things that we want to know as conservation biologists are how many animals are there, where are they, and are they increasing or decreasing or staying the same. So those are they're pretty basic questions. However, they're really hard to get at. Like how many grizzly bears are there? How many fisher are there? How many... Um, you know, of an endangered species in particular. And endangered species are hard. They tend to be rare, and they tend to be, you know, often either spread out or in little small clumps. And so finding out how many there are and that um, requires knowing how many individuals are. So what you can get from a dog out there detecting poop, from that you can extract DNA, and you can get individual identification from scat samples, which is sort of the... That's the goal, is finding out how many individuals are out there. So um, from a scat sample, we typically collect it and collect, you know, some basic information from where it was. So we can get, we put it in a GPS, so we have a map of where these animals occurred, send it to a genetic lab, and they can extract DNA and get individual identification if it's a good scat sample. And there's some studies that are showing people are getting much better information from scat than from hair samples, so it's becoming a preferred way of getting genetic information. But you can also see what the animal's been eating, and that can answer all sorts of other questions. You can get um, hormones from it because everything that passes through your system passes through your system. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everything that's kind of occurring to you is, you know, can sort of be detected. So there's lots of information we can get from from scat samples that helps, you know, manage for rare or invasive populations. Can you give me an example about using scat for, say, a population survey? Yeah, well, one of the co-founders of Working Dogs for Conservation, her name is Debbie Smith. She did her Ph.D. work using dogs to detect kit fox scat. And kit fox are these tiny little fox they're an endangered species, and they live in the Central Valley of California. And they're out there in this desert environment. Um, they're tiny. They're nocturnal. And they're a really important endangered species for California to manage. And she went out with dogs over the course of uh, four or five years. And there were radio-collared fox. There were um, they were spotlighting for fox because they're nocturnal. The other way to get information is to go out at night and spotlight and get their eye shine and try to follow them best you can. And she used dogs just to pick up the poop. But out there in where kit fox occur are also gray fox, skunk, badger, coyote, bobcat, I believe. Anyway, there were five other carnivores or omnivores out there, that, and people can't tell the difference between kit fox scat and any of these other animals. And the dogs went at over the course of this study, and they found not only the most accurate population estimate, comparing it to the other methods, to radio coloring and spotlighting, they were picking up more individuals than any other method, meaning we got a better and more robust estimate of that population and Debbie was finding out all sorts of things like, well, you know, this one that's over here that you have radio colored, he's actually the dad of that one two territories over. And they didn't have any idea that that was going on because typically with a playing radio call, you go out, um, you know, at, at you know, a particular time and you get information on where that animal is, but you can't, without a GPS call, you can't know exactly where that animal has moved. So she was getting informa- genetic information about paternity and maternity and how many uh, fathers there were for one litter of kits. And so she got some great information that was never found any other way. So she was getting behavioral information. She got a really good population estimate. And out of the 1,300 scats that the dogs picked up over that time, they were 100% accurate at picking up just the kit fox scat and not any of the other carnivore scats in that area. So the dogs were phenomenally accurate 
and cost-effective at just picking up information. And then the information they did pick up couldn't have been found any other way. Wow. And what about determining, say, home ranges? I know you were working on Asiatic black bears about trying to determine how far that they roam and so that if a protected area is large enough or not large enough. Yeah, that's a great point, especially animals who are territorial that like to mark at the edges of their territories. You can get some idea of where the edges might be, but you can also survey outside of national parks or reserves to find out, you know, how far are these animals ranging outside of a protected area? Um, Or are they, you know, in the case of, say, Asiatic black bear or Siberian tiger or, you know, these large predators, if they're coming into conflict with livestock, if they're killing livestock, you can find out, is it the same guy who's killing cows over here on the other side? Are they moving that far? Or are are all the individuals, um, you know, depredating livestock coming into conflict, conflict with local farmers? And in, in China, um, another co-founder, Amy Hurt, just got back from China, and she... Um, was in all often in cornfields outside of these Asiatic black bear reserves and looking at crop damage. These bears are out there eating farmers' corn, and so they were picking up scats there that people couldn't find to try to find out again. Is it one individual or are all the bears in this area doing this kind of damage, which just helps people manage for crops and livestock better? Have you worked in being from Montana? Worked in Montana for similar types of questions on wolves or? Or grizzlies? You know, we haven't worked as much on conflict, although that's something we're really moving towards, trying to figure out where conflict occurs and who's responsible and what we can do to help reduce conflict for livestock owners and predators. We did work on a really interesting study with the Wildlife Conservation Society. A guy named John Beckman ran a study down in the southern part of Montana between Yellowstone Park and central Idaho. And Yellowstone is obviously a big protected area. Central Idaho is also a large wilderness area and a reservoir for lots of wildlife. But in between that area, we didn't really know what was happening, where, how wildlife moved between, say, wolves, mountain lions, black bear, and grizzly bears, how they moved between Yellowstone Park and Idaho. Well, grizzly bears don't occur in Idaho. Um, So we know that there's something stopping the movement of grizzly bears from Yellowstone Park, where there are quite a lot, to Idaho, which seems like it would be a great place for grizzly bears. So we started picking up scats over the course of four years in the Centennial Mountains. It's a very rugged area, but there's a lot of grazing, sheep grazing, cattle grazing, and different kinds of um, uses in that area. And so... um, John you know, was mapping this, looking at land ownership, and then over the course of four years, as the dogs picked up scat, mapped where, where mountain lions occurred and where wolves and grizzly bears and black bears occurred. And when he compiled the data and, and mapped it out, one thing he found was, geez, you know, there's a lot of grizzly bears and wolves, both endangered species, in this one area outside of a town where a resort was planned, a big golf development, and giving that information to um, county commissioners and planners, it's like this is not, this is not a good place to plan a development and a golf course. You know, you really, you know, here's where you're getting the, the highest use for these endangered species. So that was moved or, or shut down. And then 40 miles of road, the BLM closed in that area because there was just so much, you know, wildlife and endangered wildlife use on those roads that it became clear that recreational use by truck, you know, hunters and trucks and snowmobilers would best occur on other areas. So that helped managers make decisions that they had no idea what was going on. And there's still a lot to be teased out about why grizzlies aren't making it all the way to Idaho. But there's some, you know, some really interesting things showed up in that mapping of both population size and population movement. How do you go about training a dog and, you know, starting with what dogs do you choose to train? You, most of our dogs come from animal shelters, and they tend to be incredibly um, poor pets because they have a lot of energy, and they have a lot of energy that if it's not put towards working or a ton of exercise, um, it gets 
destructive or neurotic. So, you know, people can take a dog and or raise a puppy, and it's one of these dogs that needs a job, and if they don't have a job for it, you know, often these dogs end up in shelters, and they're high euthanasia risks because they're just not easy to place in homes. And so all of these dogs are just psychotically <laughs> um, just obsessed with toys, and we choose this toy-obsessed kind of dog. We don't care what kind it is. Um, they tend to come from working lines like shepherds and labs um, and, you know, all the hunting and, and working lines. And if they have this just deep, deeply, you know, um, <laughs> psychotic love of a <laughs> toy, they're the dogs that are constantly wanting to fetch, 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 and they don't have that off switch that you wish most dogs do. We take that and we say, you know, you can have this ball. Or you can have this tug, but you can only have it if you smell this smell, whether it's grizzly bear poop or an invasive plant. And so basically it's operant conditioning where we train the dogs to smell an odor, and that's when they get their toy. And it doesn't take very long for a dog to figure out when you know the way to get the thing that they most love is by finding this smell or this you know these 17 different smells, they get their toy. And... You know, it's it's sort of funny. Another thing these dogs tend to have in common is this just absolute joy of just they tend to be incredibly over-the-top happy dogs, and they love their work. So we take these dogs often from shelters that um, where they're, they've been dumped and are at risk for euthanasia, and we give them a job that they love. We live with our dogs, so we all have working dogs living in our homes, part of, you know, our, our families, which um, can be challenging, but it's also a great way to really keep an eye on your dog, to know your dog really well, be able to read its behavior in the field. Um, Alice Whitelaw, um, one of the founders, is just retired a 13-year-old German Shepherd who's still, you know, she's good to go. She's healthy, she's strong, and uh one of the reasons we think we can work our dogs for such long lifespans is because we know them well and we take care of them really well. And yeah, so they kind of it's a it's a great story for all of our dogs' lives, but especially the ones that come out of shelters. Just by comparison, if say that German Shepherd was working on narcotics or as a cadaver dog or something, how long would a dog work in a, in those kinds of fields? Well, it it really varies, but some military dogs are yeah, um, a lot of military programs for bomb detections. They retire their dogs at six, five or six, and they they tend to have very intense lives. Some dogs live in kennels and have um, different handlers every so often. You know, people cycle in or cycle out, and they think it just it wears the dog down psychologically and physically. It's a our dogs. It's a very physically demanding job, but we we um, give them rest days and they are strong and fit. And it's just a different wear and tear having, you know, knowing your handler really well and, you know, living in a home where you get to relax a lot rather than a kennel. How do you get the samples to train on? Oh, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> they come from very, what we, what we really like, our, our first choice if we're training a dog for scat. And we are likely going to be working on a project on Cross River Gorillas, which is a subspecies of gorilla that they they don't know anything about this population. And there are lowland gorillas and there's mountain gorillas uh, and there's a babu. I'm not sure of all the different kinds of primates in this area of um, Central Africa. It's uh, it's a tough place to work and they really can't find good information. They can't figure out how to get good information. And you, you so said this was cross-river gorillas? They're called cross-river gorillas. It's on the Nigerian-Cameroon border where this population occurs. There's a lot of bush meat, you know, but a lot of people are snaring and um, gorillas are getting caught. So it's a really, it's a highly endangered population. And we're going to go over and we're going to look for poop. They come down out of the trees, they nest in, or they sleep in trees and they make little nests and they come down and they poop and they move. And we're going to try to get enough dung from these gorillas to get a good population estimate and understand, you know, the basic questions. How many, where, you know, how many are there? Where are they? And over time, are they increasing or decreasing, and why? Um, we're working with um, someone from the North Carolina Zoo, and again, Wildlife Conservation Society, and we're, you know, we're trying to get this off the ground. This is one of those projects that is likely to come through for next year, 
and so how do we start? So we we're contacted by these, um, you know, by an interested person who wants to see how this happens, and we say, yeah, we'll try to help. You know, often we'll try to help fundraise for it as well. It it has incredibly high conservation value. It's going to be very difficult, but we want to, you know, we this is what we're why we're a nonprofit and this is what we go for. So we need samples to train our dogs on and we need to find the appropriate dog. <laughs> My dog gets hot really quickly. He's probably not a good candidate. But so we find the right dogs and then because they have some people out we what we most like are scat samples from the area. They'll be on a natural diet, but we can also get them from zoos if there are zoo populations. We'll take as many as you can. We want to have male and female and young and old, you know, a variety of different kinds of scat or dung samples, and we train our dogs using those and then go over and try to train them in the field and get them acclimated a little bit and are good to go. So Amy, who worked on Asiatic black bear, they sent her some samples from China, but they also had some from zoos. So she trained them on a a mixture. And do the skits smell different depending on the diet i would think it would yeah yeah yep, they do and um again amy and alice worked in um new england on moose and they were on so they were training on moose um dung but what when they were working when they were working in the early spring i think and moose eat a different diet in the spring than they do in the fall and i think that they had collected for training and sent them um, moose pellets from a time of year that they weren't working, and that it was enough that it kind of you know they had to re- they had to really rem- you know show the dogs oh this is also the same moose that you've been but they're just eating something really different so it can affect it's usually I mean the dogs know the species but they're just um, able to seek it out and be a little more um, g- get more samples if they're familiar with you know, sort of what the animals are eating. And from the area. And zoo samples tend to be very different for the dogs than wild samples. There's enough probably hormonal differences, other things that we can't detect, that they can tell the difference. In this case, you know, the Cross River Gorilla, are there samples that you can get? Yeah, we're working with people who can, who are getting, collecting samples um, from, you know, there, there are people out there in Cameroon, I think, in a, in a national park following known cross river gorilla so they will in the dry season they will collect these and they'll dry them and ship them to us how do they ship it and does it need permits <laughs> you know um some do and some don't it you know it depends we're also talking with another project out of kenya and south africa for buffalo and the u.s doesn't want any buffalo shipped in because they could be carrying diseases that you know uh, hoof and mouth disease or something that could transfer to domestic livestock um, some some scats and dung samples, there's not any problem shipping them. Um, the U, it's usually determined by the U.S. what we allow in or don't allow in, and that's usually based on livestock disease issues. So for something like the buffalo, can you get permits or can you irradiate the sample so that any disease would be killed? Or what happens in a case like that? I think because there's hoof and mouth and tuberculosis in those populations, I think it's really unlikely we would ever get them shipped in. Um, there may be other ways of doing it. We haven't. We're just starting to explore this and looking at um, disease, in, you know, and monitoring disease in those populations. And so we're just starting to try to figure out how to do that, or should we train on, you know, on something similar or, or just zoo, zoo samples, whatever it is. But we're just starting to kick that around. It's just that that's one of the considerations we we have to take in, you know, we have to take into account. Can can you get wild samples? How many are you likely to be able to find? Do we need to source some from zoos and what are the and and that's another thing and Alice is really the one who um who who does this dealing with a lot of the logistics of um you know, shipping the dogs. Is it a rabies country? How do we do we, you know, Hawaii, there is no rabies on Hawaii, and they don't want dogs coming in without being quarantined for six months. But, you know, with 
proper vetting. You know, how do we get in there and work the dogs and get them out without <laughs> spending six months in quarantine? <laughs> so there's always some, you know, there's always crazy <laughs> logistical things, and Alice takes most of the burden <laughs> of figuring out the logistics. <laughs> Thankless task. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what have been some of the most crazy samples that you've had to get to train? Them? Um. Well, let's see. We what did we do? We did well, we did cheetah and wild dog in Kenya, and um, but we got most of the samples there. Jeez, um, well, yeah, snails, and we trained our dogs on desert tortoise uh, for working in Nevada and California. Oh, and and the brown, and the brown tree snakes. Same. We used swabs. We just um, had the folks because we couldn't. Again, invasive species, people are quite concerned about shipping invasive species around that have, you know, taken over entire islands. So we um, just worked on cotton swabs that had been run down the bellies of these snakes. And we're training dogs in Montana in the wintertime to work in hot, humid, tropical Guam. And um, based on these little cotton swabs that have been wiped down a captive snake's belly. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> white cotton swabs and the white snow. But, you know, it, it worked, again, the dogs just constantly amazed us in their willingness to take something pretty abstract and uh, do, a, do a great job. How do dogs' olfactory capabilities differ from humans? Well, I, I wish I knew more, and I wish we knew more as, as scientists. We, we really don't know. There's a huge proportion of a dog's brain is dedicated to its olfactory bulb. I mean, it has a massive olfactory bulb. So in just simple brain structure, there's a lot more of its brain built for its nose than in a human. But also in its, you know, a dog's nose tends to be much longer than a human's nose. And in that, you know, architecturally, there's turbinates and olfactory receptors sort of lining all of these very, very thin sort of I think of it almost like a radiator. It's just layers of, um, you know, windy bone, and those are on both sides covered with olfactory receptors, basically. So its nose has a lot more receptors than a human's nose could have. And this nasal epithelium, I was told, and I can't cite this, so I, I hesitate, but if you unraveled a dog's nasal epithelium, it would cover about the of a football field, and if you unraveled a human's nasal epithelium, it would cover about a postage stamp. So there's just enormous size differences between brain structure and nasal structure between humans and dogs. And the way that olfaction works, we don't understand it very well because we can't smell very well. We're not very good at discriminating. I think we're, we're you know, a lot of our behaviors are based on what we smell and sort of chemical reactions, but because we can't smell well, we can't build machines that smell well, and we just have a hard time understanding how much of the world is is dominated by olfaction and chemical information exchanged and smelled by by animals. But it's it's a fascinating thing. I think we're 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 trying to get there a little bit. You had said that the dogs were a hundred percent accurate on identifying correctly mm-hmm. that a scat sample was from a particular species. Do you have another example? I I know you've talked about the snow leopards and where you really save money by not testing all the samples collected. Yeah, and that's something we we worked with a group who were collecting snow leopard scats in Asia in Mongolia. And um, they were collecting carnivore scats from areas that they felt were, you know, this is where snow leopards occurred, and they were trying to collect snow leopard scats, and then they send them through a genetic lab, just like all of our samples tend to go, and then the species is identified. And what they were finding was of all the scats they were collecting, two or four out of 100 were actually snow leopard scats. So they were spending a tremendous amount of money. They are spending a tremendous amount of money sending these collected scats, again, to try to figure out the size of snow leopard populations and sending them to a genetic lab. And we were testing the dog's ability to just discriminate, and you know, which ones are snow leopard and the other, let's see, there's fox, domestic dog, wolf, palace cat, lynx, and um, on the salad, you know, there's wolverine and um, um, whatever... 
I think that might be it. And the dogs, you know, or the dog that we trained was, he was really, he's 100% accurate on the, on the samples on determining, you know, which ones were snow leopards. So that can, that just translates into tremendous savings for just sending those that are high probability scats. Um, and it's not like all dogs are 100% accurate on every project by, by any means, but you can determine if a dog is 85, 90, or 100% accurate, how much will that save you in shipping the scats here, getting a high probability scats, and having then those scats go to a genetic lab and potentially saving, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on lab costs and getting the same information. Can the dogs find things that you don't even know if it's out there? I know you've talked about um, Cerro in Vietnam and rhinos in Java, where you don't know if there's any of those species out there. Well, actually, and, and um, one of our colleagues who has uh, who trains dogs as well out of um, um, just outside of, of Seattle, uh, she took her do- two dogs and two handlers to to Java to look for rhino, and they knew that there were some Sumatran rhino there. They had a guess that there might be three or four. And what they found was um, there were, I think, seven. On, on, I, I, I believe seven is the right number, which was more than they were expecting. But they, because they could get DNA from the rhino dung, they got this, you know, very quickly they got a, an accurate population estimate that almost doubled the number of individuals, which is good news. And they were able to map where those animals occurred and, and find out more about those animals' behavior. So... It was, you know, that's a, again, a, that's a huge amount of information for conservation. And Sayola is a, in Vietnam, it's a cow, it's a wild cow. I think it's, it was discovered with those silly air quotes around it mm-hmm. um, <laughs> about, ten, about 10 years ago by white researchers. I think local people probably have known it's around. But in the jungles of, of Vietnam, and but they have no idea and, and since they don't have any there's none in captivity they um, don't have a radio collar on they don't know anything about this particular wild cow and there might be seven there might be 700 I mean there are not 700 there's you know it's a small small rare population and can we come over and train a dog because now they do have they found a dead one and they can get fecal matter from it can we find dung from this extremely rare animal that they know almost nothing about. Well, now that we have samples, yeah, we could train a dog all in that one individual. It would be great to have more individuals, but, you know, you have to kind of weigh what's the conservation value, how hard is this training task, and, you know, what what can we realistically do in this particular area, and could we combine looking for this rare animal with another rare animal so that we get at least, you know, more information on, you know, endangered species in this particular area. What if there isn't scat to train on? You know, can you use a lie? You know, can you use something else? Or no, if you're finding scat, you need to have scat. If we want, if we're looking for scat, we need to we need to have the scat. If we're looking for a live animal, then we need to train on the live animal. If we want to find the plant, we need to find the plant. So there is there's no um, making that part up. You often the dogs tell you information about things that they're not trained on. We were working on uh, Fisher, which is a little mustelid on the Idaho-Montana border, and the dogs were trained on Fisher scats. But they often found things that we believed the Fisher were um, using, like they would dig up a ground-nesting hornet's nest or something, and uh, we'd kind of, you know, they give you little bits of information, but they don't alert on it. They only alert to what they're trained on. And when you say alert, that means sitting down and and waiting for you to come on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And bring them their toy. (laughs) It's that simple. (laughs) So in the middle of the the desert or in the middle of the tropical forest, you're sitting there playing tug with your dog. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, and the handler is in so many ways just a vehicle for that particular <laughs> story. How, how long does the training process take? You know, it, it, depends, it depends a lot on the dog, on the individual dog. Um, Amy, her main dog right now is a dog named Wicket. She was 
She came out of a, a shelter in Montana, Anaconda Shelter, which is a great shelter. It was she was a year old. The dog was a year old. It had been in the Anaconda Shelter for six months, so half of her life she'd been in a shelter. Within nine weeks, Amy had her out in the field. So she came from being a, about a year old, having spent her half of her life in a shelter, just being neurotic and crazy. And that's what the shelter. People we usually say, oh, that dog is crazy, and that's usually the dogs that we select to look at. Um, and she took she took with it to a field project in the Centennials, and, and nine weeks later, so that's that is what can be done is kind of getting a dog out of a shelter, um, getting it used to having a little obedience, usually a better diet, taking it to a vet. And starting to train it, and they can stay a lot. They, t- you know, most dogs stay a lot for one reason or another. They decide, oh, I like it so here so much better than that shelter. I'm not really that keen on my ball, or I can't stop being distracted when I'm outside. I can't focus on the ball. You know, there, there's lots of reasons a dog might fail and either go back to a shelter or find a home as a pet somewhere. But, um, you know, sort of two months um, or so, and that is usually when we know, you know, we know within four to six weeks that the dog can make it to the field. And how many dogs make it through the training process? Um, we, if looking through shelters, walking through and all of the animals that end up in shelters, we look at maybe one to 2,000 dogs, and then one of those can make it to the field, can make it through the training to the field. So one they're to not thousand dogs. One out of, yeah, one out of maybe fifteen hundred or two thousand dogs will be what we need. Wow. Yeah. Um, so they're not. You know, there's lots of crazy dogs, but there are very few dogs crazy enough <laughs> to love this stuff. Because they have to love this work. They have to love it, love it, love it. <laughs> and how many scents can a dog train on? Uh, we don't know. Actually, we don't. We haven't found the upper limit yet. Um, I think, and I may get this wrong, maybe it's 17 or 19 cents um, odors. You know, a lot of these would occur, you know, in opposite sides of the globe, so there's, you know, they might not run over. But, and then if a dog is trained, let's say, on wolf, bear, and mountain lion, and the study is only looking at bear, then the dog will still work to those other scents, but you might not collect it. Um, so that's... That's kind of how that works. We're, we're not worried about how many scents a dog has. Once a dog is trained on a scent, will they forget it? No, they tend to remember. Do the dogs disrupt the environment, say, if they're looking for ground-nesting birds or something like that? Mm. No, and that's, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons that dogs could fail out um, and why so few make it. We need dogs who are absolutely not going to harass any wildlife or domestic livestock or, you know, anything that's out there. So if we have a dog working on ground nesting birds, we are 100% sure that the dogs will find the nest or the bird and not disturb the birds or anything else out there. So we've had dogs working on black-footed ferrets in prairie dog towns. And, you know, prairie there might be 100 prairie dogs scurrying around. The dogs are not going to pay attention to those prairie dogs. They're going to tell you whether they smell black-footed ferrets down in the hole so it's yeah so we, we have to be very very sure that our dogs are not going to be harassing anything else out there which is the real heart of non-invasive tell me about the invasive issues and you've talked about plants as well that your dogs can find seeds yeah so the dogs um we, we've been working with a researcher at the university of montana who's really interested in questions about um, how plants come from another, you know, from their native habitat and how they started invading a new one and what kind, what kind of happens chemically in the soil. So we've been doing um, studies even where the plant has been removed. This is knapweed. It's a particularly nasty um, weed in, in the West where it, they really take over grasslands and um, um, just, you know, kind of ruin all the graze. So they're... Um, they were doing experiments pulling the plants out of the soil, and the dogs were still able to alert on that soil the chemicals that this plant had left in the soil. And they're saying, yep, this one was knapweed, even though there are, you know, 
there's no plant left anymore. And so they're, they're very good at not only smelling the plant, but the chemicals that the plant leaves in the soil and in the environment. So it's easy to find knapweed as a human if it's up and flowering, but in the spring when it's just a little rosette in the soil, um, the dogs are able to find those plants before they're easy to identify by humans. So what we found on our weed studies is that the dogs are really good at when there's a problem, like a, a, an invasion, and you go in and spray or pull or burn or whatever might be an effective treatment, well, you always miss something. And so the dogs are really good at going back in and finding those little islands of weeds that are left. And before they have a chance to take over, identify that so that it can be retreated, pulled or whatever. Have they done that for more than the knapweed? Yeah, they worked on a plant in Iowa on some wildlife refuge in Iowa, and I have to look that up. It was a, it's called it's Lestadosa is the genus. It's a it's a an invasive in the in the long grass prairie, and the dogs were really good at finding this this plant that this nasty plant that's taking over some of the long grass prairie in Iowa. And we are also being asked right now by the USDA to look for um, even uh, wood boring beetles that. Um, are killing a lot of the some of the trees in the Midwest. So there's, I think, there's a lot, there are a lot of applications for dogs that you know need to be explored and figured out and and puzzled through how they'll work best. And I think, you know, we'll find more and more ways to apply dogs for invasive species that are you know creating a lot of harm both to agriculture and to wildlife. So how do you train on a beetle? How do you find I don't know, you know, Alice and Amy were, I think you train on, you train on the beetle, but also probably on the beetle nests, I'm guessing, because they're, they're leading pheromones, they're, you know, a lot of chemical communication between beetles, and I don't know what, I don't know whether they would want that, like, nesting trees, I, can't, I you know, and I, sh- I should probably know more about this, and I don't, and you'd have to ask Amy or Alice what the USDA wants on that and what, how it works. I don't work with insects very much, and so I'm not under- I don't understand what, what the best thing to find is. Is it the tree where they're <laughs> nesting or the beetles themselves or they're, where they're boring out sawdust? So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It just seems so strange. But these are the kind of things. This is where this is where it always becomes really head scratching, but interesting. It's just trying to figure out how to. What do you train on? How do you get the samples? Will it work? And where to go? Yeah. Now you work a lot in Africa, which is where you did your dissertation research as well in Botswana on wild dogs. And I'm curious about your upcoming project because you're about to leave for a few weeks in southern Africa. Can you talk a little bit about cheetahs and wild dogs and what you're about to do? <laughs> well, I, yeah, no, I feel really lucky in being able to go back and work in Africa because I, I love it and um, you know what it's like to love southern Africa. <laughs> I, um, I'm, I'm going down to, to work with groups across the southern range of cheetah and wild dog from Namibia across to Mozambique, so Mozambique, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, South Africa, and Namibia. On the there's a, a, quite a number of different projects working on cheetahs in little pockets, cheetahs here, cheetahs there, and wild dogs. And a lot of these projects would like to use detection dogs to find scat because they're they've not been able to come up with decent population numbers across this southern population range. And some are using dogs. Um, some are using them not very well. Some of them, um, you know, could use some technical assistance. And so we're pulling together a workshop. It's, um, it's with the uh, Southern African Working Group and Working Backs for Conservation. And we're going to lead a workshop on what monitoring is. And a lot of these projects really just need some very, um, need to come together and decide what monitoring is and come to all decide what's the best way to sample and make sure that they're sampling in a way that you can compare across habitat types. So whether they're, it's you know wild dogs and cheetah occurring in dense forest or out in desert, that you're still going to be able to compare the results of your studies by picking up scats and making sure that the dogs and the handlers are going to be working at the same level um, so that you can have some sense that everyone's 
<laughs> the standards are the same so you can compare the data and actually for the first time ever get a really good population estimate um, on those species. So we're meeting outside Johannesburg. A lot of people are very excited about the idea of using dogs or, or want to use them, and so we'll help you know, bring some reality in. Here's how expensive it is. Um, here's some of the limitations, and here's where they work really well. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it because it'll be, you know, in an area, again, incredibly high conservation value. And there's lots of places where dogs are not appropriate. I, I wasn't able to use dogs on my Ph.D. research in the Okavango Delta. There are, there are too many predators, and there's too many snakes and things around to, to, to work a domestic dog safely. And there's, there's places that domestic dogs shouldn't be. Even if you have a good veterinarian, you can't keep disease from affecting the dog or the dog from affecting wildlife populations in some way. So there's lots of places where it's not appropriate um, or it's not an appropriate culture because people, um, you couldn't keep a dog safe and healthy. Um, there's lots of places where this might be the best method and the most cost-effective. So we'll talk about where that will work and won't work and how to make sure, hopefully, that everyone comes to agreement on, on how best to use this method. In trying to standardize it so that you can compare results, um, when you said, you know, some people are working dogs but not working them well, uh, you know, what are some of the problems where, with the working yeah. dogs? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question, and there's a lot. There's a lot. But what what can can happen is a dog can be trained um, and work at a very high level, you know, with very high accuracy. And then a handler, someone who really wants to work with this dog, comes in and starts working the dog, and the dog very quickly figures out, hey, I can lie to this person. I can tell this person that this is the scat we're looking for. I mean, people can't tell the difference. And so the dog has a great way of, of, of sensing uncertainty in a handler. And so it's a beautiful thing for a dog to say, you know what, I'm going to just check this out. And suddenly the person is hovering and the dog goes, yep, this is, this is cheetah or this is whatever. And um, the person rewards the dog and then that reward is essentially training the dog that that's what he's looking for as well. So suddenly you've got a dog that was trained, and I'm just going to use cheetah as an example, out there trained for cheetah, and a handler who is willing to go along with this dog and reward it, and suddenly you have the dog hitting on wild dog, cheetah, hyena, jackal, leopard, you know, and which means you can't afford to send those things to a genetic lab because you've got so many species. So that's one way that you can... Um, kind of really reduce the accuracy and efficiency of a working dog by having a green handler or having a dog that's uncertain in a particular environment. And this is where it gets hard because there's a lot of science behind detection dogs and training detection dogs and handlers, and there's a lot of art to what it's like to be out in the field sensing what the dog is doing, reading the dog's behavior, knowing when it's telling you the truth, when it's just checking something out and does not need to be um, supported in exploring something. So there's, so the training the handlers and getting a good handler is a very difficult thing because a good dog can learn to become a not so good dog with a handler that doesn't really know what he or she is doing. If somebody is interested in this, are there other you know, groups like yours, or where could they go to get more information? Well, they can come to our website, and we've got a lot of information on our website. Your website yeah. is? www.workingdogsforconservation.org. And there are a number of other groups, Working Dogs. There's a lot of um, more and more individuals who are wanting to train or who are or who are training dogs to work for specific things in various capacities. Um, they're in New Zealand, there has, has been a government program um, for conservation dogs for years and years, and they've, they've worked dogs. And uh, Australia has some groups training dogs. So more and more, this is becoming an accepted method. But basically, you know, for as long as people have been running around with dogs, dogs have been giving them good information. So whatever we continue to build with detection dogs, um, all of us doing work with detection dogs is based on a really long history of tons of biologists and conservation biologists in particular out there 
reading their dog's behavior and getting information and just keep, we just keep trying to refine the method. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Oh, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation about using detection dogs for wildlife conservation with Megan Parker, co-founder and executive director of Working Dogs for Conservation. Edited transcripts of selected programs are available on my website, laurelnemi.com, and also on mongabay.com. That's M-O-N-G-A-B-A-Y.com. You can also find archived episodes of The Wildlife on iTunes at my website, laurelnemi.com, and at laurelnemi.podbean.com. You can stream The Wildlife live at theradiator.org every Monday from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And, of course, if you have comments about this show or ideas for future ones, you can email me at laurel at laurelnemi.com. The Wildlife is generously underwritten by the Lake Champlain Land Trust, a nonprofit organization permanently conserving the lands, lakeshore, critical wildlife habitats, and natural areas of Lake Champlain. More information is available online at lclt.org. This has been The Wildlife. I'm your host, Laurel Neme, and you're listening to The Radiator, 105.9 FM, WOMMLP, in Burlington, Vermont.